Well, we're going to be looking at Psalm 90 this morning. I won't read it in advance. We'll uh, read it as we go. But do you remember, some of you will remember the opening line to the long-running soap opera, daytime drama, Days of Our Lives? Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Well, it sounds really like it came from the pen of Moses, who composed what we know as Psalm 90, his only contribution to the Psalter. There are five books of the Psalms, just like there are five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. There are five books of the Psalms, and this introduces us to the fourth book. So I invite you to turn in whatever format you may have God's Word this morning, to the 90th Psalm. And in this song, we see that Moses presents a revealing look at God, a, a brutally honest look at humanity, and then how we should live in light of that. First of all, he speaks of God's ways. And as we look at this Psalm, we can break it down into three sections. We see God's ways in the first few verses, then we see mankind's days. And then we, in response to that, want to look at the way we should pray in light of that. But as we look at God's ways, you know, if we rented a place at the beach for a week and invited our children and their families to come down and spend some days with us, the question is, would they be at home even if we never spent a day in Greenville where they were raised? Would they be at home? Well, uh, whether it's Litchfield or Polly's Island or Hilton Head, whatever, if they're with us, they're home. It's for the same reason when I visited my parents when they were still here on earth, uh, I'd go home to Tennessee, even though I never grew up one day in that state. When I went to Tennessee where they lived in the latter part of their lives, well, I was going home. And the reason for that is because home is a person more than it is a place. I want us to see this morning, as we look at God's ways, that God is the abode of the saints. In verse 1, God is called the home or the dwelling place of the saints. It says, Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. Now, how is it that God is our home? The Hebrew word for home means refuge or shelter from danger or hardship. It means habitation. And if we were to just turn to the 91st Psalm, we'd see in verses 9 and 10, the psalmist says, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. You've made the Lord your home, your habitation. The Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. And so God is our refuge. He's our strength. He's a very present help in times of trouble. But we need to think in terms of the Heavenly Father being our home. Home is a refuge where we find love and acceptance. In his poem, The Death of the Hired Man, Robert Frost wrote, Home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. And that's because it's a place where you're accepted. I was speaking with a good friend this morning right here in this congregation who had uh, been in conversation with his son who lives far away and uh, all, just assured the son that he could always come home. He could always come home. So when we have loving parents like that, and we do in the Heavenly Father, 
He is our home. He is our resting place. He is our provision. He is our protection, and He is our peace. So we're accepted at home, and I think of that verse in Ephesians chapter 1 that says we are accepted in the Beloved. You see, it's not just a general acceptance by God the Father. We must come through the Son. And it's through Him that we are accepted because the Father loves the Son. And we are united to the Son by faith. And every benefit we have in this life and in the next is due to the fact that we are united to Jesus Christ, God's Son. So in Him, the beloved of all beloved, we are beloved as well, and we are accepted, and that's why the Father is home to us. We can rest in Him. Now, the English hymn writer Isaac Watts put it this way, O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Yes, my friends, God is our home, and He wants us to know Him as Father. He wants to be our eternal home, and He proved it by sending His Son, Jesus, on a rescue mission to redeem the likes of you and me. He wants us to come home. So now and forever, we can experience God as our dwelling place in the panorama of time and eternity. God is our home, our dwelling place. From the ancient days of Moses far out to the new heavens and the new earth, when the Scripture says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. And so we see that God is our abode. He's not only our place of refuge, our home place, if we know Jesus Christ, but He's also the Ancient of Days. We see this in verses 2 and 4. Moses wrote, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from beginning to end, you are God. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that's just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Ancient of days, this is our God. That phrase, the ancient of days, is only used three times in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, and it's in the book of Daniel, and it's in the seventh chapter of Daniel. Three times we see it in, in, in verse 9 and verse 13 and verse 22. And in verse 13, it refers to the Heavenly Father. For we see the Son of Man who rises up on clouds and approaches the throne of the Ancient of Days, His Father. In verses 13 and 22, it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. But the Ancient of Days, because God is triune, He's one God, three persons, then it's not difficult or improper to refer to our Father as the Ancient of Days. Well, what does that mean, the Ancient of Days? It simply means that He's been in existence forever and ever and ever. And how does that relate to time? Well, time, it flies, it bends, it warps, it shifts, it's relative. It sounds like Einstein, but it's really Moses. The Bible describes God as not being bound by time. He exists outside of it. He works in time for our sakes, but he is not bound by it. And when the Apostle John saw a vision of God in the book of Revelation, the four living creatures cried out, Holy, holy, 
Holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. You remember the name of Yahweh in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses asked, Whom shall I tell him is sending me? And God replied, I am. I am. And uh, Jesus replied to his detractors in John's gospel, Before Abraham was, I am. And then we've studied in the past those seven great, really eight great I am sayings from the Gospel of John that shows the boundlessness of God and, and His infinitude relative to time itself. Now the first question in the children's catechism is what? Who made you? And the answer the child should respond with is God made me. And that's true. But children invariably ask, who made God? And the answer, of course, perplexes them, as it does us. No one made God. <laughs> He's always been. He's the preexistent one, unfettered by time. You know, we as humans can imagine living forever, can't we? That's because, according to God's Word in Ecclesiastes 3, God has put eternity in our hearts. So we have this longing to live happily ever after somewhere, forever. We can imagine that. We can, we can think on that, but we simply cannot grasp the notion of having no beginning. And here Moses says, as if you live to be a thousand, it's nothing to God. It's like a day to Him. It's like a watch in the night or passing almost instantly uh, while we sleep. And so before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame from everlasting, thou art God, to endless years the same. A thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone, short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. So if God really exists beyond the limitations of time, then that has implications for those of us who are united to Christ by faith. Those who trust Him are free to live in absolute peace in time, free of chafing anxiety, because our time is in His hand. We are free. I love what A.W. Tozer says in his classic work, Knowledge of the Holy. How completely satisfying to turn from our limitations to, God, to a God who has none. Eternal years lie in His heart. For him, time does not pass, it remains. And those who are in Christ share with him all the riches of limitless time and endless years. So what? Well, are you bound by the tyranny of time? I know that if I allow myself to be, even on the way to church on a Sunday morning, I can grow impatient because of the constraints of time. Just ask my wife. I was preparing for the sermon and I failed a number of times. The irony there, that thinking about time, that everyone is conspiring against me for me to get to point, from point A to B. Everyone, knucklehead drivers, uh, construction workers, uh, people trimming trees, everybody's slowing me down. And I like time. I like the order of time. I like hours. I like to be there on time. And, uh, you know, 
for, for a lot of folks, the mantra is if you're not five minutes early, you're not on time. So I, I, I like the order that time brings to me, but when I'm not able to uh, meet my expectations regarding time and other people's expectation, it's a, it's a serious frustration for me because I forget that God is limitless when it comes to time. And He orders my days and He ordains things as they flow. Yeah, that construction guy up there in the tree that's blocking traffic, that the truck is just all over the road and so we have to sit. Yeah, God has ordained that. And my time is in his hands. So chill, Jim. And I suspect that some of you could take a chill pill as well. But that's what it means to know that God is limitless in, with regard to time. We're related to him. We're bound to him. And so we share with him all the, the riches of limitless time. Because we're going to live with him forever. So we see that God is the abode of the saints. We see that God is the ancient of days. And then in verse 3, we see that he is the arbiter of life and death. Notice what he says. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. You see, not only is life, human life, extremely short compared with the eternality of God, but it's totally at his disposal. Yes, the eternal one gives life and he takes it away. As Job said, a person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. You see, God has determined the number of your days and mine. And he gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, at the graveside, as the casket is lowered into the ground, we repeat these very familiar words. From dust thou art. And to dust thou shalt return. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Yes, death is God's judgment for sin. He promised our ancient father Adam that if he disobeyed, he would die. And of course we know that story of the fall. And because Adam was our federal head, our representative of this race to God, why we inherit his nature and his original sin. And because we sin by choice as well, death has come to all. Death, the penalty for sin. It's God who gives and God who takes away. It's God who numbers our days. He is the arbiter of life and death. Our life is in his hands. And so we see God's ways. Now let's as we progress through this psalm, verses 5 through 9, we're going to see man's days. The psalmist uses various images to describe the brevity or the shortness of our earthly years. It's as short as a wispy dream or a three-hour guard in the night or a blade of grass that springs up in the morning and is wilted by the end of the afternoon. And so we see in verses 5 and 6 and 10 that our days as human beings are fleeting. And the older you get, the more you realize this because perspective changes things. But Moses wrote, You sweep people away like dreams that disappear. They're like grass that springs up in the morning. In the morning it blooms and flourishes, but by evening it is dry and withered. 
Seventy years are given to us. Some live, even live to eighty. But even the best years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon they disappear and we fly away. Soon they disappear and we fly away. Who better than Moses to comment on the brevity of life? He had seen an entire generation perish in the wilderness because of their intermittent faithlessness and disobedience. Moses knew the shortness of life, even though God blessed him with 120 years. David said, Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. David got 70 years. Uh, that's Psalm 39.4. In the 31st Psalm, he says, My times are in your hands. A man went for his annual checkup and received a phone call from his doctor uh, the very next day. The doctor said, I have, I'm afraid I've got some very bad news for you. The man said, oh no, what's that? He says, well, you have something very serious. You only have 48 hours to live. And the man said, oh, that is terrible. Oh. And the doctor said, I have some more bad news. What could be worse than that, to know that you only have 48 hours to live? The doctor said, I've been trying to reach you since yesterday. <laughs> Life is short, my friend. Time, it's interesting. We try to measure it and manage it and save it and stretch it. We try to kill it. We try to buy it. But time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly, forgotten, as a dream dies at the opening day. Did you know that late medieval churches in Europe put large windows behind the pulpit area so that the parishioners could look beyond the pulpit and see out onto the cemetery? And that was a purposeful design to remind them that life is short and death is sure. Well, not only are our lives fleeting, but they're frightening and fragile. We see that in verses 7 through 9. We wither beneath your anger. We're overwhelmed by your fury. You spread out our sins before you, our secret sins. You see them all. We live our lives beneath your wrath, ending our years with a groan. He's being very sober, isn't he? Almost depressing <laughs> in his emphasis on God's wrath, his anger, and our days, which are so fleeting and frustrating. But you see, Moses saw God's wrath through that 40-year wilderness journey. Because of his people's sin, because of his own sin, he felt the wrath of God, even though they were God's people. And when we contemplate our own sin, you have to admit, if we have the proper view of God, it's a little frightening. We feel guilty when we sin against God word or thought or deed, by sins of omission or sins of commission. We feel guilty because the Holy Spirit is speaking to our minds and hearts. And, and this guilt leads to anxiety if we don't properly deal with it by immediate repentance. But to explain how God sees our sinfulness, the late Billy Graham shared a story. He said, when Cliff Barrows and I were in Atlantic City, many years ago with our wives. And one day after a service that we had had, we were walking down the boardwalk. And as we walked, we saw a man who was auctioning diamonds and other jewelry. 
And so we decided to stop and go in. And uh, I have to confess to you, Billy said, when I married Ruth, I gave her a diamond. It was so small you couldn't even see it with a microscope. And I had $65 in my pocket. And so I bid it all and won a diamond for Ruth. And I felt very good about that. Uh, the next day I went to a local jeweler and, uh, and said to him, uh, tell me how much you think this is worth. The jeweler pulled out his little glass, looked at it, and said, oh, $35, $40. And Billy said, what? This is a two-carat diamond. And the jeweler simply said, well, look for yourself. And he handed him the glass, and he's, even with his untrained eye, Billy could say, it was, see, it was just full of flaws and defects. And he used that as an illustration in his preaching. He said, that's the way God looks at us. We go to church, and we pray. We appear to be moral good people, but he looks at us through his own righteousness, the righteousness of God, and he sees in us all kinds of defects. That's our sin. And so this is our problem. God has the solution for it. But God doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. It must be punished. No mere human being can pay the price and bear that punishment for sin. Why is that? Because every human being is riddled with sin. That's why it required an infinite God to satisfy infinite God. It required Jesus, the eternal Son, to become one of us, truly, yet without sin, and to live the perfect life, the kind of life that you should have lived, and I should have lived, but could never in a million years, and then to die a sacrificial death to atone for the sins of the people who would believe that He was the eternal Son of God and the only Savior of sinners. And then to be raised from the dead to prove that everything He ever said was true and to show that He's the firstfruits of all those who believe. Because He rose, we will live also with Him forever. That's what God did for us in Christ. And so all who believe Him and receive Him as Lord and Savior, as Rescuer, as Master of their lives, are pardoned from their sins. And the guilty go free. And that's amazing grace. And then when we who are in Christ, we're credited with the righteousness of Jesus as well. And we're adopted into His forever family. So when God sees us, He sees the perfection of His own Son. His moral purity. Still, we live in a tragically fallen world that impacts every last one of us. That's why when we fold this earthly tent, our days end with a groan or a sigh, as Moses said. It's true. Our days are fleeting and there's a lot of frustration along the way. Well, in light of that, how should we pray to God? The psalmist here expresses profound sadness, but he didn't despair. I know it sounds like it, but his song is not over yet. He didn't despair. Instead, he rested in his real home. And he directed his petition to the Ancient of Days. And we can learn something from the prayer that he incorporates into this song of old. And so we would see the way that we should pray. First of all, we should ask for a right approach to God's purposes. We see that in verses 11 through 13. Who can comprehend the power of your anger? Your wrath is as awesome as the fear you deserve. 
Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. O Lord, come back to us. How long will you delay? Take pity on your servants. And so God's purpose is to create a people for himself who will celebrate him and, and worship him, who will reverence him and serve him and obey him. And again, he says here, teach us to know the length of our days. Teach us to number our days. You know, the deathclock.org says that I'm going to die on Sunday, October 23rd, 2044. I'm somewhat relieved because when I checked that thing about 20 years ago, it said I was dying in 34. But apparently, as you, the older you get, you feel, put that data in, the actuarial table says you've got a greater chance of living a little longer. So it's nice to know I'm going to die on the Sabbath, and if some of you young people are around, I'd appreciate you showing up at my funeral. <laughs> Ralph Waldo Emerson said, It's not the length of life, but the depth of life that matters. And while he was no great Christian apologist, what he said there was true. It is the depth of our life that matters. And we need purpose in our lives. God has a purpose for us. And that purpose is to glorify Him. And that becomes our purpose by gospel obedience is the way that occurs, by admitting our sins and, and the penalty that it deserves and then turning to Christ. And so it's about faith, exercising faith and repentance on a daily basis in a world consumed with the mad pursuit of pleasures and just the accumulation of stuff. We know down deep that our days are few and that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, should live for His glory. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Ominous words, are they not? Basically, friends, our lives are preparation for eternity. We may live 60 to 100 years on earth, but eternity is endless. This is the warm-up act. This is the dress rehearsal. This is the dot on the infinite line. Bottom line is we were made by God and for God. And until we figure it out, life won't make sense. It simply won't. Have you figured it out? Have you figured it out that you were made by God and for His purposes? It's not an intellectual thing. It's really about enlightenment, the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit that convinces you you are a sinner and that, you, that, has, that has impact that will ring throughout eternity. And you've got to deal with it to avoid what Jesus so plainly warned us of, a place called hell. And so God is gracious in offering us a solution to the terrible problem we have. I like what Rick Warren says about our lives in his first chapter of The Purpose Driven Life. He says, our lives are a test or a trial. They are a trust because God has given each one of us abilities and opportunities and they are a temporary assignment. The more we age, the more we realize the temporary nature of life. Well, we want to ask to understand God's purposes and to see Him accomplish those purposes in us and through us. And then we want to ask for a right appreciation for God's love. And mercy. We see that in verses 14 through 15. 
Satisfy us each morning with your unfailing love so we may sing for joy to the end of our lives. Give us gladness in proportion to our former misery. Replace the evil years with good. You see, the psalmist changes his tone and moves from darkness to light. He hopes in the steadfast love of God. He hopes in the, the mercies of God which flow from his love. He knows God's love for him is steadfast, and he wants to live a joy-filled life, and he knows that God alone is the source. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span on Calvary. Mercy there was great. Grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. Calvary. And so from God's love that drew salvation's plan for us, flow His mercy to those of us who were miserable in our sins. I love the words of T.O. Chisholm, who also wrote, Great is Thy Faithfulness. He said, The mercies of God, what a theme for my song. Oh, I never shall, could number them o'er. They're more than the stars in the heavenly dome or the sands on the wave-beaten shore. For mercy is so great, what return can I make? For mercy is so constant and sure. I'll love him. I'll serve him with all that I have, as long as my life shall endure. You see, friend, that's the response to the mercies of God, that we will love him because he first loved us, that he doesn't pour his wrath out on us and doesn't give us what we deserve, but rather pours it out on his son. And so the mercies of God, we respond by humble repentance and faith and say, yes, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. You know, as we age, time can seem like an enemy. And as we experience physical decline and other kinds of decline, but for the mercies of God and the promises that he has made to us in Christ, the late Dr. Paul Brand a renowned physician and co-author of the book Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, spoke at a retirement home dedication. He said, I remember well when I was at my physical peak. <clears throat> I was 27 years old and had just finished medical school. A group of friends and I were mountain climbing and we could climb for hours. For some people, when they cross that peak, their physical peak, for them life is over. I remember well my mental peak, too. I was 57 years of age and was performing groundbreaking hand surgery. All of my medical training was coming together in one place. And for some people, when they cross that peak, your mental peak, why, for them, life is over. Dr. Brandt said, I'm now over 80 years of age. I recently realized I'm approaching another peak, my spiritual peak. All I have sought to become as a person has the opportunity to come together in wisdom and maturity and kindness and love and joy and peace. And I realize when I cross that peak, for me, life will not be over. It will have just begun. What a beautiful statement based on the promises of God. I want to ask you, do you fully appreciate the mercies of God? And have you responded? Have the wonders of His mercy captivated your heart? Have you responded to Him in faith? And then finally, in light of what God has done for us and in light of who we are, we should ask for a right appropriation of God's power. Verses 16 and 17. Let us, your servants, see you work again. Let our children see your glory. And may the Lord our God show us his approval and make our efforts successful. Yes, make our 
efforts successful. You see, Moses was bold enough to ask God to prosper the work of his hands and show his power, his glory to his children and his children's children. He wanted his life to echo with meaning and significance far into eternity. And see, if God establishes the work of our hands, our vocation, what we do for a living, it's a sacred task. And what we do now counts forever. And so we ask God to prosper our work, to make our efforts successful. We pray for His enabling power to live a life that is selfless and sacrificial for His glory, to see His him at work in us. And so it comes down to the concluding questions, friends. Are you living in the proper fear of God, knowing His wrath, knowing that His anger is being stored up for the wicked? Do you understand what Jesus said when He said, don't fear those who can destroy the body, rather fear the one who can destroy the body and cast the soul into hell? There's a proper reverence that overwhelms us when we see that. And we feel so small. But are you living in the proper fear of God? And are you living with purpose? That is, for the glory of God. Have you learned to number your days so that when we slip the surly bonds of earth, we step into His immediate presence? And do you have a time peace? I don't mean a watch. I mean peace. So that as A.W. Tozer said, we who are in Christ share with Him all the riches of limitless time and endless years. I wonder, do you see time as a devouring beast, as a roaring lion who scares you into marching lockstep to the click of the clock? Or do you view time as a friendly creature who purrs and licks your hand? Time can be tamed when we understand its power, its proper place in God's plan. Because an infinite God gives eternal life to those who receive the gift of His Son, his sheer infinitude can give us an unearthly peace concerning time. Friends, the only way for your short life to have any value is to live it wisely before the eternal God and take refuge in the merciful cross of Jesus Christ. And so passes the days of our lives. This is the Word of God. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the Word of God abides forever.